You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. I want to invite you guys to open up to, uh, to Genesis uh, 17. Um, it's uh, obviously kind of a late morning and a bit of a slow morning, but I've just been so excited all week just to preach. Um, uh, I'm so thankful for Stephen last week, who just did such a great job um, walking through really, I think, a pretty difficult passage. Um, but I told him at small group, because me and him, you know, we're in the same group. Uh, we were at the Dixon's house for small group, and I just told him he did such a great job pointing the thing back to the character of God. And I think that passage becomes so much, if you remember, about, you know, the, the, the sexuality of it and, and, and kind of the scandal of it and, and kind of the offense of it and the slavery and everything like that. But, 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 but I think, you know, when, when, when we really open up that, that, that scripture and really remember that the main character is always God, and it's, it's never really about the sin. It's never really about the scandal. It's always about the scandal of grace. It's about his covenant. I think it, um, Stephen just did a great job helping us to see that and really took, I think, what's a difficult scripture and just helped us to see just another corner within the passage of scripture where the grace of God is imminent. And that's how it is. That's how it is in our life and in the scriptures. And I'm sure that's what will happen today. But Genesis uh, chapter 17, um, if you're there, give me a good thumbs up right here. If you're there, Genesis 17, there it is in your, in your paper Bible and or phone. Um, so um, in, in many different spheres of life and, and uh, in, in, in places and just kind of like the people that we're connected to, Kyra and I, um, we've seen kind of, kind of the evidence of this. I, I, I've, I've just um, come to understand that the spring, just following Valentine's Day, uh, after the holidays are over, you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas, um, you know, Valentine's Day and so forth, that the spring happens to be a, a time when, um, when really uh, churches um, and, and counselors um, focus on the topic of marriage uh, almost more than any, any other topic, and couples that are married or couples that are looking to get married are more focused than ever on the thought of the health of their marriage, on counseling, on, on talking about the covenant of, of marriage. And I don't know what it is. It's, it's societal, I guess. It's cultural. It's just something that seems to be um, in, in, in the thoughts and in, in the hearts and minds of, of at least married couples and in families um, at large. And, uh, and so um, I am super excited. Raise your hand, Darrell. Where's Darrell uh, Dove at? Darrell over here in the house. Everybody wave at Darrell. Darrell and his sweet fiance, uh, Kristen, are getting married in uh, June, I believe, at the end of June. And uh, I will be the, uh, the officiant of that wedding. And I'm super excited about that. I'm already getting my suit pressed. But, um, but um, I, I have a few weddings that come up uh, during the spring and the summer. And that's, that's where, you know, that season obviously um, begins to become more and more prominent. And uh, coming up into the spring, that always means that I do a lot of premarital counseling. And in premarital counseling, I think everybody has their own process. I'll usually meet with a couple for about three times. We're obviously planning the wedding, but most of the time we're planning for beyond the wedding for the process of marriage. And uh, I've just come to understand that the best use of that time is to, to really go back to what does God mean about marriage and what is God's design for marriage. You know, I, I'll tell people sometimes that, you know, if you, if you were to um, get on a bike and try and treat it like it's a car, you would be disappointed pretty quickly. Uh, and, and so it is that, that when we talk about marriage and getting into marriage and then we think about our, our marriages, uh, when we're in the marriage, if we don't understand the intent of the marriage or the design of the marriage or the purpose of the marriage, it's really easy to misunderstand and be disappointed by what that relationship is actually supposed to be. And that's why I always, always contend for this fact that uh, I, I honestly regret the fact that most of the time the counseling sessions uh, that happen around marriage, for me at least, are premarital counseling when really most of us need 
postmarital counseling. Amen? Uh, premarital counseling is when everybody knows the answer. Everybody can kind of raise their hand and give the Bible study answer. And, uh, you know, how often should you love your spouse? Always. How often should you forgive your spouse? All the time. How often should you be a servant? Every day. How often should, be, should you be selfish? Never, you know. So the, so the concept and the understanding of marriage is not a difficult one. It's, it's not a complicated one. Uh, it's something that, you know, you could understand from, from a Disney movie, from a children's movie, from a children's storybook. It's something that uh, I think is embedded into, you know, just kind of the, the human process. Uh, but, but the post-marriage counseling is really where uh, it'd be tough. You know, po- post-marriage. And, 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 I, and I oftentimes... Um, suggest that people that are getting married, you know, schedule that, that they schedule their premarital counseling, but even kind of like once a month, schedule times for dinners with, with couples that are already married, uh, because it's really the post-marriage counseling that is hard. Um, how many of you guys know that if you own an oven, uh, you can have a house, a pretty house, and, a, and you could build it, and you can have all the right decorations and so forth, and you can have an oven, uh, but not necessarily know how to cook, Anybody know anybody that has an oven doesn't know how to cook, right? And so uh, you certainly know people that have cars that don't know how to drive, I'm sure. Um, you, can, uh, you, you, know, you can have uh, a computer and not how to use it. You have an iPhone and not know what it does, right? And, uh, and similarly, similarly, there are plenty of people, including myself, that walk down the aisle of marriage and the covenant of marriage and do not know how to be married. Uh, we can go get the tux, and we can go get the ring, go get the dress, and we can walk down and circle, and it only takes a day. It's really actually a pretty simple process. I wish it was more complicated, and the premarital process is, is largely about walking through Genesis 1 and 3 and Ephesians 5, and you can help people understand the concept of marriage, but understanding marriage and enjoying marriage are two separate things. Walking down the aisle and, and having a wife, having a husband, and, 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 and celebrating, you know, what it is that God has lined up in marriage, you can, you, can, uh, you know, mentally and... and uh, and, and, and philosophically understand what marriage is and be able to multi, multiple choice or true or false or essay the question, but to walk it out and to be married are, 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 are two um, separate things. And so in Genesis 17, uh, we're not introduced to a new covenant. Um, God uh, has had, up to this point, three different kind of face-to-face encounters. He'd appeared and he's given visions and he's spoken to Abram and he's, he's, he's not changed the covenant. Like it's been, you know, it's been the same uh, covenant. But what he's doing in Genesis 17, which is a rather long chapter, and it's actually one of the chapters so far that is dominated by God more than any other chapter in terms of how much of the passage is quotes from God's lips himself. So we should kind of pay attention to it. He's not, he's not changing the covenant. He's explaining the covenant to Abraham. And I would venture to say, I think the topic almost of, of, of this passage is, is God is giving Abram not pre-covenant counseling, but post-covenant counseling. In Genesis 12, he introduces what the covenant's going to be. And then Genesis you know, 15, he, he walks down the covenant pieces while Abram's asleep and cuts the covenant with, with Abram. But it's in Genesis 17 that we'll read today that through three divine speeches, God counsels Abram on how to have a covenant relationship with him. When me and Kyra first got married in, in 2005, I was a doof, I am a doofenshmirf, but imagine me back then. I was even more of a doofenshmirf in 2005. And and I walked down the aisle. I was at, um, on 14, uh, at the, at the um, plantation on, on 14. It's right by the uh, intersection of Pelham. And it was in 2005, and, and Kyra and I, we were young. We were just 21. We were just so young. And, uh, and, we, and we walked down, and it was, it was an outdoor wedding. It was a beautiful wedding, and, and it, was, it was one of the best days of my life. And, and uh, my suit was too big. It looked like my head was too small. My hair was bigger. My head looked smaller, and my suit was really big. And I said, I do. And, and I looked across, and Kyra said, I do. And 
And we said yes to the covenant, and the covenant was cut that moment. And the preacher, you know, he said, like, what God, you know, joins together, let no man asunder. Like, what God brings together, let no man separate. And, 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 and we, we walked down the aisle, and then we walked into her dad's car, and we drove off, and that was the beginning of our marriage. But I had no idea what I had said I do to yet, did I? I didn't know what the covenant meant. I was married, but I didn't know what it meant to be married. And, and, and so it is with Genesis 12 and 13 and 14, why why does the process, why is it so deliberate and why is it taking a long time and why is God continually to talk about the same things over and over and over again is because it's because not because he's trying to build up a covenant or, or, or make something more of the covenant or change the covenant or extend the covenant. He, he, is, he is rather trying to explain the covenant and counsel Abram that the covenant might be built inside Abram. This is what Genesis 17 says. He says, Verse one, when Abram was 99 years old, I don't think there's anybody that's 99 in here, so Abram is a pretty old dude. Uh, so we're imagining um, he's, he's, a, he's very old in his age and, and, and health and so forth. It says, the Lord appears to him, which he often does to Abram. And uh, he says, I am God Almighty. The, uh, the Hebrew translation for this particular name of God is El Shaddai, the sufficient one. Uh, there was a time when Stephen was talking last week when, when Hagar uh, speaks face-to-face with God as the first outsider of the covenant to talk to God. And it was a very interesting proposition of what happens when God talks to people that are outside the promise, outside the covenant. And, uh, and he says, um, and she says, you're the God who sees me. And he affirms that. That's, that's, that's El Roy, E-L-R-O-I. There's a new name here, El Roy, the God that sees me. And, and now Abram is talking to God. And in this interaction, this encounter, he has a different name for himself, same God, different name. And he's explaining himself as El Shaddai, the sufficient one. And he tells Abram, he says, walk before me. He says, be blameless. And then I put parentheses on the screen as well as in my translation here, which is the NIV. Um, the NIV puts in the word then, but really most scholars disagree with this translation of it saying then, if you read the NASB, there is no then, and that's a very important part of this passage. Verse 2, it says, without the then, it would read, I will make my covenant between me and you, and you will greatly increase in your numbers. So the way we know the time frame of the story of Abram is by his age. Like, it doesn't say in 1986, this is what God said to Abram. It says, Abram is 99. And the Bible reader is supposed to do the math along the way that he was 75 when he was called and he's 99 now. And you think about all the things that have happened from then until now. And that's how you're supposed to deduce the time frame. This is a 25-year, 24-year time frame gap of God beginning to engage Abram in what he's calling the covenant, the covenant of Yahweh. And so as time goes on, um, uh, uh, Abram actually doesn't talk to God or see God um, nearly as much as we would think. Um, Abram, um, Abram talks to God again in, tw- in Genesis 12 when uh, he first hears that he's supposed to have a new name and be a great nation. He talks to him in Genesis chapter 15. Uh, but really, since if you do the math based on Genesis 16 and Genesis 17, when, when Stephen put down the microphone last week and picking up the microphone today, there's been a 13-year gap between Stephen's message and this message. There's been a 13-year gap between Genesis chapter 16 and Genesis chapter 17. And, and there's been no, no, no um, conversation between God and Abraham between those two times. And, and, so, um, and so, so, so now he's had Ishmael. And uh, the reason why the conversation is going to be brought up today is because Ishmael is 13, which means he is ready to pass, you know, kind of the rite of passage of becoming a man in the Jewish tradition now. Nowadays, that'd be called the bar mitzvah. But, but we know that's about a 13-year gap. And so Abram 
is sitting in this process of waiting. And up until now, the series has been based on that, right? Like, how does God take a person from no faith to faith to much faith? And some of that has to do with the process of time. Part of the ingredient of growing faith is time. Time of waiting, time of praying, time of testing, and time sometimes of conflict and battle. But nonetheless, the time is not wasted. And Abram has been in the waiting uh, zone for about 13 years with no conversation with him. And so we would ask ourselves, I mean, think about this uh, for a second. So for 13 years, um, 13 years ago, it's 2020. 13 years ago is 2007. So where were you in 2007? Uh, as I gather my notes here, because my iPad broke. <laughs> um, where were you in, in 2007? How old were you? What was going on in your life? What was, the, what was the, 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 the chapter of the day? What would you tell yourself if you could go back in time and speak to yourself from back in 2007? I was, uh, well, I was uh, 23 years old. Um, we just had one child. We were married for a few years. I was, I was a teacher. And, um, and, and if I were to confess to you and talk to you, I mean, I don't know what she would say for the process of 13 years, but my life is completely different. I live in a completely different place. Um, I, I, I have even very different social circles. Um, me and Kyra, we're, we're the same people. We're married, you know, to the same people with the same name, but our marriage is very different. Her Danny Silk, he's a, he's a, he's a preacher and, and a great author in terms of uh, marriage and that kind of thing. And, and, he, and he says, you know, you're married to the same person, but you actually have four different marriages, you know. You think about what happens in the process of 13 years. You think about what that does in faith. What would that do to a person's character? What does that do to a person's perspective? What does that do to a person's patience? What does that do to a person's process? Does God waste time or is it on purpose? And what is the reason and the rationale? I think that uh, the time that God has installed and instilled into Abram's journey is the process not to build up the covenant, but to build the covenant into Abram's life. The process of, of waiting for 13 years is not to roll out something new in the covenant or to make a decision on God's part about what he's going to do or how he's going to do it in Abram. I think he, he sees, our future, from, he sees our, our future from his future. He sits in the future and he looks backwards at our timeline. And he is not making decisions as we go. He already knows where we're headed. And so when he has conversations with people that are finite and that are in the three-dimensional space and time of the timeline... Uh, he, he already knows, you know, what's happening. And so it's not a waste of time. He's, he's allowing the time to do a process in Abraham to develop the, co- the, the, the covenant and make it richer. And so from 2005, if I did it by our anniversary of 15 years until 2020, it's not that the marriage covenant has changed. I mean, my suit size has certainly changed and my hairline has changed. And the kind of the candor of our, our relationship is different. But the covenant in and of itself like, I listened to the same Tim Keller message back then as I suggest that people in my premarital stuff listen to now. The concept of marital covenant, Jesus being the, the husband of the church, like, like man and husband is supposed to be of the wife. The vision for marriage is the same. So the covenant that we said yes to and I do to in 2005 is the same, but the meaning of it is different. And the process of, is different. And the, value, and, 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 the, and the connection and the value is different. You know, one of, one of our favorite routines um, uh, from the whole week is on Friday, me and Kyra. Um, it's, been a, it's been a long-standing process. Uh, Stephen said um, that marriage is, is, in its essence and at its core, above all else, uh, rooted in conflict. <laughs> because uh, marriage is a vehicle that, uh, in many respects, helps us become 
more like Jesus and uh, brings us to the sharp parts of, our, of, of his challenge as well as the dark parts of our weaknesses. And, and me and Kyra's marriage is certainly not exclusive to that. And, uh, but one of the things that I cherish more than ever, and it's going to sound super boring maybe, but it's, super, it's just special and sweet to me, is that uh, on Friday mornings um, in, in the last couple weeks, we have a calendar meeting. And you're like, that is the least attractive thing you could have ever said. Nobody wants to get married now because you said that. But one of my highlights is our calendar meeting. A friend of mine named Rich Hodge says that uh, marriage is communication and um, you are essentially growing or not in helping to understand who you are and understanding who your spouse is and growing in that communication. And uh, he says, you don't have to go to Ruth Chris to have a date. He says, you have to have a pattern for a date and you have to continuation for a date. And so you want to get chocolates and you want to get coffee and you want to get a donut and just make sure that you circle it on Friday. And you can wear sweatpants to the thing. Just make sure you bring your heart and make sure you're ready to talk. And every, every, every Friday for the last couple of weeks, <clears throat> we've gotten this habit and we've been, you know, scheduling things, you know, like, like planning out and dreaming now, like, like moving from the have to, to the can do, to the get to, and the excitement of merging our lives together. And, 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 if, and if I could just share that with you, like, like, I think the rationale behind that is, is because I think it's not that the covenant has changed, but our understanding of the covenant has changed. And the simple things are even sweeter and deeper and richer. And the time has compounded, not the meaning of the covenant, but the sweetness of it. And, and the challenge and the cost of it. And, 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 so, and so now where it was, you know, this big, you know, vision of I'm just going to have a best friend and we're going to walk on the beach and make out all the time, that's changed a little bit. Uh, and, and now all of a sudden, not that those things aren't, aren't wonderful when they happen, but I also love the Dunkin' Donuts trips and the coffees and the calendars. Because, and this is why, because um, I've, I've come to, to sense and understand in, in my experience with, with marriage, and this is a horizontal covenant, that the, per, the process and the purpose of marriage um, is, is, well, I guess I'm dumb to catch up with the party, right? Because it already says it in Genesis 2. It's for two people to become one, right? That's what Genesis 2 says, that therefore a man and a woman will leave their parents, they'll leave their father and mother, and they'll be joined. And what was two will become one. And that's what Adam sings a song about. He writes the first poem, and he's like, this is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. And this is like, you know, I couldn't image God without her, you know? Like, there's parts of her that I, I need in order to become the image bearer that I need to be. And the woman would look conversely back and echo that poem back to the man that there's parts of the Godhead and who I'm supposed to become and how I'm supposed to walk that are somehow encapsulated into this person in a marriage covenant context. And so, so God has created this vehicle that is appropriate, that is apt, that is sufficient um, in, in, in helping this covenant you know, to happen and to help the image bearing process to happen. And so what is, what, is, what is coffee? Coffee is in the beginning of the marriage, you know, you bring, I, I bring and Kyra brings our past, our history, you know, our desire, and our goals, and our agenda. And we start with, with some sort of a, 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 a picture that time can only help to help us unpack and, and, and let go of. Of, I'm going to have, I'm going to be the main character in this marriage, and I'm going to be uh, in the driver's seat of this marriage, and this person's going to be uh, a supporting cast in my life. I mean, we don't say that out loud, but that's essentially what it is. And so there's some usually variations, you know, like you, you get married and, and, um, and so you start off and you're going, um, uh, I'm going to have the marriage that my parents never had. 
you know, could be one of the vision statements. Or you come in and you say, I'm going to teach this person how to have the marriage my parents had. And they're going to catch up with my family of history and family of origin. Uh, we also have, you know, situations where um, we come in and um, we say, we are going to be, you know, the Christian Barbie and the Christian Ken. And uh, we are going to be the amalgamation of everybody's best intent of what a marriage ought to be. And so there is a pride and uh, an excitement about being a kind of couple, you know, that, you know, that finally I'm going to be happy because I'm always looking at other happy couples and I'm going to have a happy couple and do that. And we find out over the 15 years and 20 years that none of that is the purpose because the purpose, the purpose, the purpose is not happiness. The purpose is not fulfillment. The purpose is oneness. And slowly but surely, God is taking two separate lives that have separate histories and separate goals and separate ambitions. And he's bringing them to coffee or whatever it is your deal is, the park or uh, the kitchen table or whatever it is. And he's making two lives into one. And and that's the tough part is because, uh, you know, it starts out and sometimes we live these kind of, independent lives. Like we live over the same house and I don't call you your sin out and you don't call my sin out. And we live in this place where we have a kind of a mutual, dysfunctional, isolated, parallel track relationship where we live in the same house, but we're not one. And uh, we either passively avoid the conflicts that it takes to become one, or we just kill each other within the conflicts and we don't surrender and submit and we never find the oneness. But nonetheless, the, you know, the vehicle is love and the vehicle, vehicle is submission. The vehicle is, is surrender to the other person within, again, this horizontal covenant. But the outcome, the goal is not just to be a great spouse. The outcome is not just to not get divorced. The outcome and the goal is oneness. It's to take two lives and to, to resist the temptation or, uh, or to um, resolve to um, not settle for anything less than one life. That, 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 it's, that it's not what my parents have told me this thing is gonna be or what my television has told me this thing is gonna be or what, what just my isolated understanding of this thing. It's, it's two people coming together, uh, submitting and, 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 um, and admitting that they, they don't have the answer and it's coming together and it's creating one new life that's bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Therefore, a husband will leave his past and a wife will leave her past and her ambitions and her goals and they will come with questions, not in answers and exclamation points and they will become one flesh. And this is what we're starting to see with, with Abram as I've uh, finally got my, my notes here is that, is that that's, that is exactly what God is doing with Abram. He's gonna line up this covenant and we're basically for the rest of the message, I wanna walk through what this covenant says God post-marriage counsels Abram in his relationship. He post-covenant counsels Abram. He's not changing the covenant. He's not adding to the covenant. He's not subtracting the covenant. The covenant is still the same, but Abram's different. He's 13 years older. And so in that process, God is defining the covenant for Abram. He is, he is this is the word that the Bible is gonna use. He's establishing the covenant with Abram. The covenant has already been cut, but he is establishing it. And he's establishing it in Abram's heart because God is actually not after the nations or the name or the kingdom or the Canaanites or Canaan itself. He is after Abram. He is after oneness with Abram. How does God take a man and a woman who are two separate people from Indiana and South Carolina and merge them together in one place over coffee dates every Friday? We don't know. It's a mystery. That's what Paul says. And how much more is it a mystery that God himself is merging himself with a man, with Abram? This is what it's at stake. This is what this passage is about. He says to Abram in Genesis 17, he says, when he's 99 years old, he appears to him. He says, I'm the all-sufficient one. I have everything that you need. He says, walk before me and be faithful and be blameless. No then, there is no then, because actually verse two is the predecessor of verse one. 
Verse two is the cause and verse one is the effect, not the other way around. We read it this way then. He says, I will make my covenant between you and me. You will find it secure. You will find it's the same in 2005 to 2015 to 2017. It is not changing, Abram. It is the same. I am not lacking my ability nor my persistence, nor my consistency. I am establishing, I am in the driver's seat of this covenant and I am establishing my covenant with you. I've defined it, I've cut it, and I will establish it. I will see it through. I'm sufficient to do so. And so he says, I will make my covenant with you and you will greatly increase in number. I will fulfill my side of the covenant. Therefore, because of this, walk before me, faithful like Noah, blameless like Enoch. Walk before me, Abram for all the days of your life. And so there are three phrases I'll put on the screen that I think mark uh, the nature of this covenant. This is a deep covenant. This is not a, I was telling the family meeting beforehand, we signed a great contract with a great guy named Paul Helfen who's helping us uh, develop our future property in the next coming spring. After we get into the building, I probably won't call Paul a lot. The nature of our covenant has been fulfilled. That's not the kind of covenant that God's cutting. God is cutting an eternal covenant, an all-in covenant, a marriage covenant, consecrated covenant. This is the kind of relationship that God is is up to. This is the business that he's up to even in this room today. He is uh, creating three things. This is what I see in the passage. One, he's creating an I will covenant. He's creating a not an if covenant, but a because covenant. You see the difference? The nature and the the dynamic of the way that God is going to come to the coffee table with you every Friday and Saturday and Sunday is not an if it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's a because. The relationship is a because relationship. Because I've loved you. Because I've been faithful to you. Because when you failed in Egypt, I pulled you out of it. Because when you, uh, when you had a, 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 a child outside of my promise, I still blessed Ishmael. Because I'm never giving up on you. It's not an if you do something, then I'll be faithful, Abram. It's a because I am faithful. Because I am, I am pursuing, because I'm El Shaddai, because I'm the all-seeing one and the all-knowing one and the all-sufficient one, because of my sufficiency, Abram, you will walk blameless. I will establish my covenant in your heart because I will. The second thing that I see is that he is obviously in these ongoing interactions and encounters with Abram, bringing up new names to Abram. He is not just interested in an I will covenant and a because covenant, but he's interested in an I am covenant. He's interested in in not just Abram trusting and knowing the kind of behavioral expectations of what God will do, but the the very heart and nature. This is what you see, right? Every single time, if he's only going to talk to him four different times for the last 15 or 25 years, every time he's explaining a new side of his nature, he's telling him not just what he will do, but who he is. He says, Abram, I'm your shield and great strength. I'm your great reward. The I will is not just the I will. There's an I am to this thing. There's a I want you to know me. I want to, I want to gather these, these events in your history and in your timeline, and I want them to, to, to uh, combine for your understanding of what's essential to this covenant. It's a relational covenant, not just transactional. So I want you to know who I am. And so in the beginning, he introduces himself the way that Genesis 1 does. He is the Elohim. He is the capital E, God of all gods. There are many gods. There are. There are many principalities, there are many spirits, there's many you know, spiritual beings that are evil and good in the spiritual realm. So we're not saying that there aren't 
different spiritual beings in this planet, but, but God is saying with the capital E that he is the God of gods. He is the Lord of lords. He is the God of Israel. He's the only one true God. And what Abram is realizing time after time is that, 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 that he is not just serving one God who happens to be lucky and win most of the battles. He is serving the only God, the one true God, the God that is above all other gods and the one from which all authorities derive. And he is, he is not only telling Abraham, but showing him and, and, and developing and establishing this covenant within his heart. He, he then reveals his personal name from Genesis 2, Yahweh, the personal name of God, which is, which is the inutterable name. It's the name that you know, they would change out the pens when they would write in the Old Testament um, all throughout the name of Yahweh, the personal name of God. He has introduced himself as El Roy so far, the God who sees as well as El Shaddai, the all-sufficient one. So he is creating an I will covenant that Abram, it's not based on you. I'm coming to the coffee table even if you don't. This is an I will covenant, not a you will. This is an I will covenant. I will do this thing. I will change this thing. Also, that's an I am covenant. And then finally, in this covenant, I think of the circumcision, this is where we begin to see that God is establishing a covenant of a you are. Not just that you will do, but you are something much different. And uh, Abram's anatomy will serve to show that by the end of this chapter, as well as his name. And so um, let's dive in. Three covenant speeches that God gives, all starting with God says. First, God speaks of his covenant towards Abraham, Abram, and now Abraham, and then uh, what Abram's covenant back to God should be, and then finally covenant with Sarai. Here we go. Verse three, Abram fell faced down. And God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. Notice what he says there. This is my covenant. This is not your covenant. This is my covenant. This is me at the coffee table. He says, this is my covenant with you, and you uh, will be the father of many nations. That's new. We'll get into that in a second. So these, these covenant promises, they're not different. They're just developed they're deeper, they're wider, they're longer. It's, it's me finding out on year seven that the marriage I said yes to was, was more than I thought. It's not different, it's more, it's deeper, it's wider, it's long, longer, it's more painful, right? It's more costly, it's better, it's richer, it's sweeter in year 15 and year 20. This is what's happening, he's developing, he's, he's enriching, he's adding dimension to the covenant. It's not different, it's, it's just more. So he says, you're not just gonna be a nation or a great nation or just have as many people as the sand on the shore or the, or the stars in the sky. You are going to be the father of many nations, Abram. There's more to it than you thought. You signed up for something and there's more. Verse five, no longer will you be called Abram for your name will be Abraham. You are going to be called different. I'm looking at you different. I'm calling you different even than your father did or your mother did here on this earth back in Ur. I'm calling you something different. You have a different name for I've made you a father, he says, again, of many nations. He's never called Abraham that. That's new. He's never called him that. That's a new thing on some Friday morning that he met with God. I will make you very fruitful. I'll make you nations. I'll make nations of you. And then he says, there will be kings that come from you. We never talked about kings yet. That's brand new. That's brand new language that he's established. Is it, is it different? No, it's just deeper. It's wider. It's more everlasting. It's longer. Kings will come from you. He says, I will establish, there's that word. He's not establishing the covenant. He's establishing the covenant in Abraham. He's building the covenant in Abraham. He's not building the covenant itself. And so he's building something new in Abraham. He says, I'm gonna establish my covenant with you. I'm not just cutting it with you. I'm gonna build it up so you believe it and walk in it and live in it. And he says, uh, you will have an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God of your descendants after you. That's new. He's handing it down from one generation to the next. Verse eight, it says, the whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you and I will be their God. So there's five new things that you have there and I'll just read them right off. Uh, the first thing that you have is that it's not just that he's going to be a great nation, it's that he's going to be a father of many nations. The second thing that you have is that his name is gonna change from Abram to Abraham. 
The third thing that you see is that he has uh, brought kings. He's going to bring a royal promise, a Davidic kind of covenant, actually, is going to, the way the Bible is going to talk about it into the future. But he's going to not just bring a lot of people that maybe will be poor or richer otherwise. These are going to be rulers in the earth. And out of him are going to come these lines of authority, these places that are going to shape nations in history. Out of the line of Abraham, the line of faith, according to the promise of God, he's going to bring kings out of this, out of this line. Number four, it's an everlasting covenant. That has never been said before. We're not, you know, Abram might have thought it was until he died. This is an ever, this is never ending, a never ending covenant. Number five, and it is that he is creating an everlasting home for Abram. So my, my purpose is just to walk through that and then talk about um, Abram's response. This is the first uh, divine speech of God regarding the covenant. And the first verse we want to look at is verse four. As for me, he says, my covenant with you is that you will be a father of many nations. One of my greatest joys uh, that I just never, I'm an only child. I'm pretty selfish by nature. Uh, I, I like to sleep in and do what I want. I did not know what I was signing up for for marriage. I didn't know what I was signing up for fatherhood. Those are, those, none of those things work when you have kids, especially four. We have four kids. One of the great joys of, of my life is, um, I was telling the family meeting before we got going here this morning, is that my little son, whose also name is Oliver, he's three years old, has the same teeth structure as me. His teeth are crooked, just in the same spots. And his face looks like mine. He's got a round head, bless him. And, uh, and he is just, he's left-handed, which is not like me, but he looks, he looks I think, a lot like me, and I, it's, it's a special connection. And, and he's been on a daddy kick. That's not always happening all the time. Sometimes they're three, sometimes they're four, sometimes they're five, but he's like, he wants me to carry him. He wants me to put him to bed. He wants me, and, and I, that used to bother me, but now it just, it just warms my heart. There's something special about it. And then, uh, and then, and then Alec, you know, like uh, Alec, um, Alec, like, like I shared from the basketball thing, is like he, he, wants, um, he wants so badly to, to play basketball because we play basketball and we talk about Stephen Curry and we play video games and, and he is like that and I see the fatherly impact on that. And, and Leo, you know, last night, every night, you know, I kind of gather my notes together and get ready for this morning and, and he comes over to me and, and, and he gave me a better sermon illustration than I gave y'all today uh, about why the grace of God is like a Christmas present under a tree. And uh, you leave Christmas presents on the tree, but not every time everybody opens it. And, and, and he, he, he prayed for me and he thought about me as, we got, as I got ready for the sermon. And, and he was wishing me, you know, good luck or whatever for this morning. And, and Rose, sweet Rose, we, we, we have a, a friendship, you know, that's growing because she's 13 now. She's not a little kid and a little baby. And so we actually mutually laugh at the same things and she's growing into that. And, and, so, and so it's like this. It's like, I think the thing about, that sneaks up about you, with you uh, on, on, the, on, on, on the kids is that you're giving, you know, everything, right? Like you're figuring out that you're trying to give everything that you possibly can because you'll never give anything to your kids and regret giving it to them. And so as long as it's like, you know, a good thing that you're trying to give. And so you're giving as much as you can. And the beauty of it is that somehow um, the person on the other end of that, the reciprocation of that relationship is somehow finding almost, the, is, is finding like the deepest human thing that they're ever going to need, even if the thing that you give is just stupid and not really on point and, and off base somehow between the grace of God. And Ephesians, you know, five lays all that out about how we do that in Jesus Christ and how Jesus makes our lacks as parents and lackings as children somehow unified in the Holy Spirit and do something edifying that looks like Jesus because of that. And what a beautiful process to be a part of. And God didn't call Abram a general of many nations or a president of many nations or a council of many nations or an overseer of many nations. He calls him a father of many nations. And the process of, of what God is doing is not just sharing his responsibilities or sharing some tasks to get Abram to be useful here while he's alive. He's sharing his likeness with Abram. 
He's, he's like putting himself into Abram and he's mingling and merging his life with Abram's life. He's, he's not just making some delegated authority. He is like literally displacing his very heart, his nature, his character, his sufficiency into Abram so that Abram might not only just receive what God is doing, but share in what God is doing. And he calls him a father and changes his name. Number two, the change is, it says in verse, chapter, or verse, verse five, he says, no longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be called Abraham for I have made you a father of many nations. Notice that Abram is different from Abraham and the difference is that there's an extra H. The H, I believe, I think is the, is the fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, meaning grace that comes right out of the middle vowels of, uh, in the Hebrew you know, alphabet of God's name, W-H, uh, or Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, yod Hey vah Hey. The H is a breath and it means grace. It's, it's the same breath that he breathed into Adam that gave it life. And when, when the life left uh, Adam and, and he said, I can't contend with man anymore. And he pulls the Ruah breath out of man. That's the thing that gives life. It is the grace of God. It is the touch of God. It is the miracle of God. It is the life of God. It is the things that man can't create on their own. God has just put right in the middle of Abram's name and Sarah's name. It's not a random number. It is a random letter. Rather. It is his letter. He has put his letter and his mark and his, his seal, his life, his grace right in the middle of not just Abram's life or his timeline or circumstances, in the middle of the dude's name. And, this, and, and he's installing and instilling, he's mingling himself, he's merging himself. He is a facilitating oneness within the conversation, the covenant counseling conversation with Abraham. This is a big deal. This is a really big deal. I, mean, I used to hate my name, Oliver. It's three syllables. Yo, dog, yo, Oliver, pass me the ball. That's not cool. I, I, my name needs to be Brad. I don't want to be Oliver. That's, what am I, British? Like, why? I don't like my name. You know, I didn't like my name. All growing up, I, I'm telling you, it's like I, I lived in kind of like that more urban spot. Oliver, that's like, you, you need to be at Barnes & Noble sipping some $5 latte with that stuff. Like, you're not lifting weights with Oliver. That's a bad name, you know? And, uh, and the Lord did something significant. He does significant things, I think, in all of us. And he has different coffee table conversations and covenant conversations with each of us. But there's a distinct time I can remember, you know, reading The Purpose Driven Life when I was like 16 years old and I'm coming up in my faith and, and he says, you know what? There are divorced uh, parents and um, illegitimate children in, in the kind of cultural sense, but there are no illegitimate children in God. There is no person that has not been named by God. There's no person that doesn't have a purpose in God. There's no person, this is what, you know, the author that Rick Warren is talking about in the book, he's like, you have a name and God has named you that. He likes your name. I just remember thinking, yeah, like, he likes my name, you know? There's, there's a moment, like, I literally, in a very literal way, had to say to myself, like, people have convinced me to not like my name, and they lied to me, and God has told me the truth. He's spoken to me even through the pages of this author today, like, God knows my name and has named me, and has, he, has, um, he has legitimized my name. And this is what, this is what God is after. He's, he's not... He's not just after the obedience. He, he's, after God. he's after Abram's entire life. He's after, Ab he's after the middle of his name. He's trying to put his grace and his sufficiency in the middle of it. And he's mingling and he's merging and he's, he's not trying to allow Abram to just kind of bring his history and his path in, past into the thing, nor is he just allowing himself to sit, to sit in heaven separate of, of Abram, but he has, he has created and founded and formed a coffee table covenant that, that, that has merged the two lives together. God didn't have to merge his life with Abraham. He doesn't need Abraham to enjoy, uh, you know, the, the, the shalom of heaven, which he breathed on. He could have just put up the fence and sat in, 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 the kingdom, in, in his kingdom castle. He, can, he comes down and he decides to merge himself 
with, with Abraham. He's interested in the oneness with Abraham. Quickly now, so the next verse says, um, it says, uh, verse six, I will make you very fruitful. I'll make uh, nations and kings from you. Um, uh, uh, kings, it's the first time we, we see that God is interested in bringing out kind of a, a covenantal kingdom, a covenantal governance, so, so to speak, that, that uh, we're not just beggars leading beggars to the bread, you know, and, and hiding under a bushel, that we are supposed to be salt agents in the world and influence culture and engage culture and not run away and hide in our bungalows and, 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 and be afraid of things going on in the world, but we're supposed to engage it and become kingdom ambassadors. Like we're supposed to be the head, not the tail. We're supposed to change, not be changed. And we're supposed to influence. And, and so I, I thought about this, like, you know, we recently went to a Washington DC trip and, and uh, my kids, you know, they saw the Nicolas Cage movie, you know, National Treasures. They're like, let's go see the Declaration of Independence. And so there you go. You know, we go into this like room and it looks just like the Nicolas Cage movie, The National Treasure. And it's like, the papers are, are like the real, I'm just, I can't get over this as a history teacher. Like the papers are in there, man. Like the, the letter, I'm like, Thomas Jefferson is like wrote this thing. And some of you guys probably wouldn't care, but I was like freaking out. I'm like, Thomas Jefferson wrote this thing. And you can feel like it, I mean, our churches and, and even, you know, our, our homes, like we don't practice, you know, sanctity a ton. You know, like there isn't like these like temple spaces that we do. You know, you go to India, you go to China, that's really normal. Like this was a really bizarre feeling to go into an American place and feel like there was like nobody could talk really loud and nobody's phone was like, it's the only room in America probably where you can't have a phone. There's like this, this respect, right? Like there's this kind of like um, sobriety that enters into the room when you look at these, these pages, and this scripture is telling us that like as much as the echoes of that paper have still influenced our time today and, and, and changed societies and many revolutions would come because of it and they'd become the beginning of a movement, you know, of decolonization and lots of other things that would go on in our nation's history and the world's history. Like, like one little girl's prayer in a third grade classroom praying for something in Jesus' name has more authority and more everlasting longevity than that document. Like do we have a vision for, for kingdom? Do we have a vision for influence, for kingdom? Like the name of Jesus, the name of America is not going to outlast the name of Jesus. And, and, and a prayer in the name of Jesus, we have to catch a vision that, that, that he's coming to the coffee table and he's not just trying to get our obedience, he's trying to get oneness. And the purpose of that is he's merging our lives together, our names together, our purpose together, our destiny together, that we, we might influence the world the way that he sees it, to see the kingdom of heaven reign and be everlasting. Next, verse seven, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for your generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. You guys, like, we don't, nothing's everlasting anymore. And I mean, I, like, I, uh, I was looking at my wedding pictures, you know, leading up to this. Like, I don't, even, I don't even know half of the guys that are like in my wedding anymore. This is like 13 years ago or 15 years ago. Like, nothing's everlasting anymore, you know? Like, like, like our, our, our relationships aren't everlasting. We change our careers four and five times. Like we don't have a vision for, for everlasting. God sits down at the covenant coffee table with us. He counsels us about the covenant. He's like, I want you to understand like this never ends. I, like, and that's part of it because you won't be able to become one if you don't under, th- th- that the covenant is unconditional, that I'm unconditional, that I'm loving you and pursuing you, that I'm at coffee every Friday, even when you don't show up. And he's going, I'm never stop coming to coffee with you. I'm never, the, the, the covenant is everlasting. And not only that, it's not only you, it's your sons and your son's sons and your son's sons. And your, it's like, it's, 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 it's Isaac has the coffee table just as much as you. And the covenant will go on and on and on and on and on forever, for eternity in perpetuity. There is no end to this covenant. It's an everlasting covenant. 
And this is what the table of God does for us. This is what the covenant of God, it, give, it brings us out of our, you know, we have this like five minute vision, like what's gonna keep me happy for five minutes? And he's got like a 5,000 year vision in front of us. He's like, you don't get me and you don't get this covenant until you know I'm not stopping. It never ends. The covenant goes on and on and on. And, and, and the thing that I'm trying to build in you, you have to understand, like, like I will wait for 13 years. I'll wait for 25 years. I'll wait a hundred years until you understand this is everlasting. I'll, I'll wait. I got time. And, and, and so, so what's not, so like what's changing is not the covenant. What's developing is Abraham's understanding of his place with God and his place in the covenant. And Abram needs to get taught and he can't just learn from a sermon. He can't just learn from a speech. He has to get taught with his life. He's not, God's not going anywhere. And something about 13 years of sitting at the table and seeing that he's always there does something in your heart. It takes an insecure person into a secure person. It takes a, a small-minded person to a big-minded person. It takes a short-term attitude person and makes them a long-term person when they get a glimpse of the vision that this covenant is everlasting, that it never ends, that it goes on and on and on. And lastly, he closes it off with this. He says, verse eight, the whole land of Canaan, you know, the ones that the big bad guys live in, the giants? He says, now you reside in there as a foreigner. You'll think that um, you don't belong there. You think that it doesn't belong to you. You'll think that um, you won't ever live there because they're so big and scary and hairy and mean and whatever. He says, but I'm going to give it to you. And, uh, and that everlasting thing, that I'm coming to the coffee table thing with you every single Friday thing, it's like, that's where I'm going meet to meet with you in, the place that you don't think. And, and this, is where, this is where we are. It's like, we look at media and politics and the places where the enemy has a stronghold and we think, oh, that stuff is just, I can't wait till God comes back and gets us out of that. No, he's like, I'm not getting you out of anything. Like, I'm here to take that back. I'm here to take education back. I'm here to take motherhood back and marriage back. That doesn't belong to them. That belongs to me. And so it belongs to you. And so I didn't come down here to sit at the table with you to get you out of this. I sent you into this. And I'm merging my life with you and I'm changing your name and I'm, I'm working in like, like almost like, like yeast into dough, you know? I'm working in my name into your name and my life into your life until there's no difference, there's no, there's no separation. There's a two becoming one, there's a oneness, there's a, a mingling of souls, a mingling of, of beliefs and attitudes and values and this takes time. It's, that's why the covenant is not just about walking down the aisle and saying I do, it's time at the coffee table. It's merging two lives into one. So what would you do if that was you? Like, uh, like, like you just heard all this stuff, you know, and you had a ch chance to believe it and I, you're looking back on your 13 years and you're asking like, is that right over this character? And do I believe that? And do I have faith for that? And man, I knew you were gonna ask me to like have kids, but I didn't even have kings. I mean, that's a, I mean, am I still, you know, like, what, like how do you respond? It's like what I'm asking. It's like, if you're in his shoes, like, what are you gonna do? You call up all your friends, like, you won't believe. I'm a big deal, big deal now, like, respect me, you know? put it on social media, like write it all down, go get a lawyer, make sure it's right. Like, what do you do? And God explains it. It's a second speech, right? He, he explains what Abram is supposed to do. He, he gives Abram what God's covenant is and then gives Abram what his covenant back to God is. He's, he's showing him how to un, unwrap the present that he's trying to give him. And this is what it is. It's interesting, guys, so get ready. <laughs> he says, as for you, you must keep my covenant and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you and the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo a circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. It'd be cool to get a tattoo instead. It may be more visible, um, but this is what he's doing. Uh, and it was a very public thing. Like, you know, you think about like, that's a very private thing. Like, don't you think that faith should be public? I mean, it would be, it, it was just more culturally relevant that you're just, 
I don't know. You're just, that's happening. You're seeing that more and more, like whether you're even in the New Testament in Rome and things like that, like the way they did athletics and trained, the way they showered, the way they bathed is a very common practice. Everybody would know in every room who was circumcised and who was not. And everybody knows the permanence of that. And, uh, and culturally, it was a well-practiced thing in other uh, civilizations, but this one was supposed to be Abraham doing this in a different way for different purposes. And he says, every male in your house is going to be uh, circumcised as a sign, not as the source, but as a sign, as the outward demonstration of what's going on inside of you. He says, the covenant between me and you has a sign, and that's what it is. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including, including those born in the household or brought bought with money from a foreigner. Those who are not uh, your offspring, whether born in your household or bought uh, with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So here's a very, very important question. And we're actually gonna go to the New Testament to ask this question. But um, here's the question. What did Abraham, we went through the five things, right? Nations, kings, names, all that stuff. All the things that God is doing through Abraham, in Abraham. He doesn't just want the covenant, he wants, he wants Abram. He wants all of Abraham. He wants his whole life and he wants to mingle his life into oneness with Abraham. What's Abraham have to do to receive that? The answer is absolutely nothing. The circumcision is a covenant sign. It's an outward demonstration of an inward change. It's just, it's just the the appropriate response. It's the ability to say yes. It's giving him a tangible thing to say yes to what is the most remarkable, scandalous offer that, that God could ever offer to Abraham. He has let Abraham in on that conversation early. But that covenant is not a symptom. It's a sign. It's an outward demonstration. And it doesn't need to be replaced by the fact that when Abraham cut the covenant, he was sleeping. The real sign of the covenant is actually sleeping. <laughs> It's being asleep, like that's what's required. But the nature of the covenant, and this is why it's so important to have a because relationship, not an if relationship, right? We love because he loves us. We're driven because he chose us. We, we forgive because he's forgiven us. Not if we forgive, then he will forgive. It's like because he's loved us, we respond with an all in. And that's the nature of the covenant. The heart of the covenant is oneness. And then therefore the, the motive of the covenant is love. Love doesn't demand anything. It doesn't expect really anything. God is saying, my covenant with you is I'll be here on Friday whether you're here or not. I'm not demanding. So the covenant of God asks or demands and expects for nothing, but it asks for absolutely everything. It's asking for such a deep identity change that every day when he wakes up and looks in the mirror and every day when he considers you know, the, the fruit of his generations and descendants, when he considers the nature of reproduction like this is what is indelibly found, is established in Abraham's storyline, is, is that God has asked Abram for his entire life. He's not demanding, he's not even expecting, but he is asking, he's asking for Abram's entire life. So this is what Romans 4 says about the circumcision covenant that we just read about. He says, now to the one who works, which is wages, that's the if covenant. If you work, you get a wage. If you don't work, you're gonna be on the street, right? So, if you work, if, if you have a working relationship, that's called a wage. Paul's gonna argue that is not what happened with the circumcision. This is not a wage. This is not an if response. It is a because. He says, now to the one who, who works, you get a wage, if you work. Are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. 
contrary is gift there. The juxtaposition is gift. Verse five, however, to the one who does not work, who trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited to them as a gift, as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks to, of the blessedness of the one on whom God credits righteousness apart from the works. He says, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against him. He's saying that David and, and Moses and Aaron and Abraham and Jesus, they all agree Forgiveness is a gift. It is not an if, it's a because. God didn't have to come to the cross. He didn't have to come to the table. He didn't have to install his Holy Spirit within us, but he did. And so we live because and not if. And so he says, we're blessed because of that. We're blessed because, not if. Verse nine, and this is an important question. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Then verse 10, what circumcision, or under what circumstances was it credited? And this is the important like hinge question of the, of the passage. Was Abraham blessed after he was circumcised or before? Paul does the hermeneutical you know, extension for us. He helps us interpret the scripture and he remembers the math, right? Genesis 11 and 12, 12 comes before Genesis 17. Genesis 15 comes before 17. God did, Abraham did not start the conversation. God started it. And when the covenant was cut, Abraham was asleep. The circumcision is not the symptom. It is the sign, it is the outward demonstration. And so it is a life of consecration, a life of forgiveness, a life of generosity, a life of parenting, of, of faithfulness to spouse, of being, um, of, of being selfless and, and, and responding. Is it, all of our life in the covenant relationship is a response. It's a because, it's not an if. And so the, the economy of the relationship is, is becoming more and more established. This is not an Abraham will, but an I will covenant. This is not a, just an I will for you in a transactional way, but an I am covenant. It's like, I want to know you. I want to be with you. I want to merge my life with you. And then ultimately, not just an I am covenant, but a you are covenant. Because every day when you wake up in the, in, and look in the mirror, and every day when you, when you go about your daily life, everyone will know that you don't belong to yourself or belong only to this world, but you belong to me, Abraham. And my name is, and your name will, will serve to show that, and your anatomy will serve to show that, and your actions will serve to show that. And so from here on out, in the Old Testament, the New Testament, the appeal for, for, for people to be holy as God is holy and set themselves apart and to, and to do all the things that are the, the one another's and the, and the others that are listed in the Old and New Testament, they are all because actions. They are never if actions. They are all the symptoms they are not the source of the relationship. The covenant source is love. The covenant source is unconditional. And so, there, so, so, so it's, like, it's like the covenant is not changing. The Holy Spirit is always going to be in us if, if we are made new in Christ. That is, our, that is our new name and that is our new position in Christ. And, and we will always have Jesus. We might not always enjoy the peace of God, but he gives it to us freely. We not always enjoy the freedom of God, but he gives it to us freely because of what he's done for us, not if and when we do the right thing. I'll read on uh, to the very, very end. Um, I'll invite the, the band to come forward as well as we kind of transition to worship. But it says this, it says, Abraham from this, he says, he falls face down and he laughs. Uh, it's kind of like a nervous laughter here. Like, um, have you ever been like complaining to your spouse about something and uh, you're like expecting the worst case scenario is about to happen and then you pull up and like the best case scenario happens and you look like a jerk because you expected the worst and you expected the worst of people and they were like nicer than you thought and the world was better than you thought. You just kind of laugh and you feel a little bit embarrassed. Has that ever happened to anybody here? That's what grace is doing, I think. And Abraham names his son Isaac laughter 
because of this. God names him laughter because that's what grace will do to us. I often have said, and I really do believe, the more we encounter grace, the more we laugh and the more we cry because we, we don't expect it. We don't think that it's, it's happening to us. We don't think that God is going to be that good and he's gonna be at the table again and again and again. It's everlasting and it's deep and it's wide and, it, and it's dimensional. We don't believe in that. But he says, uh, he says, your wife, he says, your wife, Sarah, will bear a son and you will call him Isaac and I'll establish my covenant with him an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless Ishmael as well. That's how good God is. He blesses the insider and he blesses the outsider. He says, I will make him fruitful and greatly increase his numbers. And he will be the father of 12 rulers and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac from Sarah, uh, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. And when he had finished speaking with Abraham, God went up on that very day. On that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael and all those born in his household or brought from his, with his money on that very day. Every male in his household was circumcised. They were changed from the inside out. They were, they were marked, not if, but because of God's goodness by his, in his character. Verse 24, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised and his son Ishmael was 13 and Abraham and his son Ishmael were born, were both circumcised on that very day. And every male in Abraham's household, including those born in the household or brought uh, bought from a foreigner was circumcised with him. I want to read a John Piper quote to close, close us up um, this morning. This is what John Piper says about the nature of covenant and its influence on 13 years or 25 years or 50 or 100 years of life. He says, I want you to picture heaven as an orchestra hall and the music of the symphony as the glory of God. Everybody here knows that faith is the precondition for entering the hall and enjoying that music. But he says, but some of you, he says, I fear, not reading Romans 4, some of you, I fear, have trusted Christ like it's buying a ticket to an orchestra hall once and for all, that you can put this ticket away in your pocket as the guarantee of your admission someday, even though the affections of your life are captured, the covenant of your life, the heart of your life, the established agreements of your life, the values and decisions and where your calendar goes. He says, you would have a ticket and it would guarantee you admittance, but your heart uh, has been captured by the music of this world. That is not a biblical view of saving faith. It's a delusion. Faith is a precondition for enjoying, like the real covenant is not just walking down the aisle one day. It's living a life with God, merged with God. So there's no difference between he and us, and there's no distance between he and us. Faith is a precondition for every enjoying the symphony. It's the tuning of our heart to sing his praise every day for 13 years of God's glory and not in the sense of getting a ticket, but in the sense of getting an ear for heaven's music. The real precondition of enjoying the music of heaven throughout the eternity is a new heart, as Jeremiah 31 would say, which delights in the things of God, not a decision card which you carry in your pocket to ease your conscience while your mind is captivated by the delights of this world. My intentional question this morning, I'll invite you to stand, is not a question, but a shape. It's a triangle, and I want you to consider this shape uh, as it uh, might reflect to your life. Is there no, the picture that's included in the thing, uh, in the email? Um, if it's not, we'll just take it down and I'll, I'll just use some words here. But I want you to consider this in, in the intentional question. The covenant conversation with Abraham uh, is an I am covenant, I will covenant, and ultimately you are covenant. And it establishes the covenant. It, it establishes the covenant within Abraham, not just around him through a very important kind of relationship, a covenant and everlasting relationship. 
And so, so this is what law says. Law and earning and wages says this, that if I'm obedient, if I do what God says, then I will become the kind of person that God wants me to be. And if I can manage in my 15 and 20 and 100 years going to coffee with Jesus to become the kind of person that God will accept, then, then, and only then, and if, and only then, will I be accepted and have a relationship with Him. And God takes that concept and He uses years of not only walking down the aisle, but walking with you in every stage of life. And he takes that concept and he turns it completely upside down. He says, you've got it all backwards. And I want you to remember this covenant. And I'm going to sit with you as long as it takes in Genesis 17 to remind you. It doesn't start with obedience. It starts with intimacy. And the relationship will start. He says, this is who I am in you, Abraham. This is what I'm doing in your life. This is how I'm never giving up. This is how I'm never letting you go. This is how I'm faithful to you, even when you're not faithful to me. And the thing has to start with intimacy or it's not his covenant in the first place. And from that, he changes everything about us. My, my daughter Rose goes in middle school and there's a jock table and a cheerleader table and a, and a, and a Dungeons and Dragons table and, and, and a volleyball table. And God's like, I'm, I'm not just asking you for your actions. I want you at my table. I don't want your obedience. I want your identity. I want you changed. I want you circumcised from the heart. It says in, in Jeremiah 31 that one day no one will have to teach each other to know God because they will all know God because the new covenant will give us a new heart and a new identity and we'll be completely different, not just by name, but by nature. We'll be completely different. We are not just getting into the symphony hall and sleeping through it. We are enjoying and tuning our heart to every single moment of it. Are you meeting at the table of God and merging your life with his? Are you becoming deeper and wider and longer and more everlasting? Is your vision getting longer? Is your is your, is your your um, expectation of what God can do in influence and in kingdoms growing growing deeper? Are you growing more in confidence with him? Because this is the nature. He's not just asking for obedience. He's, he's aiming at oneness and he's doing it over time. And so are we at the table with him and do we have an identity with him, an, an intimacy with him, an identity, and then ultimately an obedience? Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.